A college senior has one job offer from Google and another from the CIA. Which job should she take? We'll come to that. But first, an examination of the entire vast American intelligence apparatus. Amy Ziegart on Uncommon Knowledge Now. Welcome to Uncommon Knowledge. I'm Peter Robinson. A fellow at the Hoover Institution and a professor of political science at Stanford, Amy Ziegart served on the National Security Council for President Bill Clinton and advised the 2000 presidential campaign of then Governor, later President, George W. Bush. Amy Ziegart's new book, Spies, Lies, and Algorithms, The History and Future of American intelligence. Amy, welcome. Peter, thanks so much for having me. First question. Let me set it up with two quotations. Quotation number one, Michael Rubin of the American Enterprise Institute writing about the withdrawal from Afghanistan, which he calls an intelligence failure. Quote, not only did the Central Intelligence Agency and other US intelligence agencies wildly underestimate the speed of the Taliban advance, they appear to have been blind to the political dealings of the Taliban uh, and the military prepositioning the Taliban had achieved. Close quote. Here's quotation two Julian Barnes and David Sanger in the New York Times. The United States intelligence agencies unearthed Russia's war plans. They accurately assessed Putin's intentions. They got the timing of his invasion right almost to the hour. The success of American intelligence, the success of American intelligence, is one of the most striking developments of the Ukraine crisis, close quote. Between the intel failure, if you're going to grant that it was a failure, in Afghanistan last summer, and the intel success in Ukraine this spring, what changed? Oh, such a great question. So I take issue with the premise Peter, that, right. that Afghanistan was an intelligence failure. So as you know, there's, a, there's an old saying in the intelligence business that there are never policy failures, there are only intelligence failures. And so my read of Afghanistan was it really was a colossal policy failure. And in fact, if you take a closer look at different intelligence agencies and what they said, the CIA was always more pessimistic about the ability of the government in Afghanistan to sustain itself than the military was. I think part of the challenge there was defense intelligence agencies were grading their own homework. So it's certainly true that they were more optimistic than they should have been. But the reason that withdrawal was so devastatingly unsuccessful had less to do with our intelligence agencies and much more to do with the Biden administration's policies. You know, intelligence is a moving target. We can't say the government in Kabul is going to sustain itself for X number of days when what we're doing on the ground is affecting uh, how the government in Afghanistan is going to sustain itself. So it's an interaction between policy and intelligence. And so I think it's really a policy failure in okay. Afghanistan. So if you don't, I, I, I grant that you're rejecting the premise but do you, are you, do you still see, I guess the question is, did the intel community, the agencies, this vast apparatus that you're going to explain to us, was there some real-time learning in these last six or eight months, or did they get it 
right the first time and they got it right this time and that's just being professional, consistently professional throughout the period? I think we don't know. I think uh, it's going to take okay. a long time All before right. we're going to know <clears throat> why we did so well uh, with Russia's invasion of Ukraine. You know, it depends on the time. It depends on the topic. Some topics have better talent. Some topics have better access. What is clear about Ukraine is we had really good intelligence. We had really good collection. It looks like from multiple types of intelligence, human intelligence, technical intelligence. We had great analysis of that intelligence and what it could suggest. And perhaps most importantly, the administration used the intelligence. It declassified the intelligence in real time. And that's new. All right. Oh, oh I see. So it's the policy people. If there was learning that took place, it's the policy people who, who did a large portion of that learning. I think that's one big difference between okay. Afghanistan and Russia, which is the policy people actually telegraphed. Here's what we're learning in real time about troop movements and false flag operations and letting the world know Putin's trying to con the world. Don't believe the lie. We're getting the truth out first. Okay. So here's the underlying theme, I hope, that emerges in, in our talk because it's the, it's the theme that popped up in my head again and again as I read your book. And that is the difficulty of operating an intelligence community in a democracy. We pay their budgets. Their budgets are dark. We don't really know much about the budgeting. They get to operate in secret. And then you have this persistent problem. This leads to the next two or three questions. Um, that we don't know how to, we don't know what the baseline is. How do you know when they got something right and when they got something wrong? And if you don't know that, how can you hold them accountable? Okay, so that's sort of the underlying or the background question. And if you don't mind, I'd like to take you through a couple of case studies and just ask how a professional and a scholar such as yourself, how you think about these questions, all right? Okay. So we started with Ukraine, which is of the moment, but let's back up. Iraq and the weapons of mass destruction. Meeting in the White House in 2002, CIA Director George Tenet tells President Bush, the evidence that Iraq possesses weapons of mass destruction amounts to, quote, a slam dunk case, close quote. And of course, we invade the next year and the WMDs aren't there. All right. After the war, the Rob Silberman Commission investigates what happened. They investigate the intelligence particularly. And the central finding, which Judge Larry Silberman discussed at this very table a few years ago, is this. Saddam Hussein had persuaded everyone in Iraq, his generals, his family, that he did have weapons of mass destruction. And if everybody believes something that's untrue, whether it's untrue or not, it's very, very hard for intelligence to pick that up. Do you buy all of that? I buy some of it. I think, you know, we have access now to the Ba'ath Party archives. We have access to a lot more intelligence about how Saddam dealt with his inner circle. And it's clear that he was duplicitous even with his own people. Right. And he had reasons to do that. He wanted the world to think he had these capabilities. At the same time, he wanted the Americans to believe that he didn't. And so that part is certainly true. 
But it's also true that we had colossal collection failures of intelligence. Okay. Explain and, that. What, a, what is a collection? You used that a moment ago when you were saying we had good collection right. for Ukraine. What does that mean? So good intelligence really requires two things. You have to collect the right information, and then you have to assess what it means. And information is often ambiguous, so you have to have both things. And in the case of Iraq and WMD, we really didn't have people on the ground after weapons inspe inspectors were kicked out of the country. And so our information coming out of Iraq was really frozen in time. And so what that then led to was a series of analytic errors. In the absence of new intelligence, our intelligence agencies assumed Saddam was doing what he had done before, when in fact he wasn't. And so that commission and other commissions that investigated the WMD failure really found a number of different analytic problems, groupthink being one of them. Nobody really took dissenting views seriously, for example. So we know there were dissenting views in the State Department and in the Department of Energy and their intelligence unit about whether Saddam really had the capabilities that uh, we thought he did. There were dissenting views, but they were buried in that national intelligence estimate. Well, we also know that there was sort of mirror imaging we imagine that Saddam would behave as we would behave in that mm. situation. And that mm. turned out not to be true, too. So as political scientists like to say, the failure in Iraq was overdetermined. There were so many variables that went wrong, lots of, of factors that went into this mistake. But it was clearly an intelligence failure. I see. All right. Here's another case study. And, and you, go into the, you go into that one in your book, of course, and you go into this one in your book as well and that's the search for Osama bin Laden. Very briefly, and as you explain in the book, the hunt for bin Laden took a decade. And for most of those years, intelligence officers told us, at least this is me speaking as a layman, having read the newspapers and paid some attention to it over the years, that bin Laden was most likely in this very difficult mountainous terrain between Afghanistan. You're smiling because you heard this a thousand times yourself. Everybody was talking about right. this for years, right. And when we found him, Nothing of the sort. He was living in a comfortable compound less than a mile from the Pakistani military academy. He wasn't in the mountains. He, he was in a perfectly inhabited part of Pakistan. So assessing, how do we assess this? On the one hand, we found him and we got him. On the other hand, it took a decade and who knows how many tens of millions of dollars to find a man who was, well, not exactly hiding in plain sight, but he certainly wasn't up in the inaccessible mountains. So how do you, I guess what I'm asking is, how, would an or, how does an ordinary American, how does a member of Congress who sits on an oversight committee, but always has to go back to his office and make fundraising phone calls or go home to campaign uh, in the, these people are busy people. They're seldom experts. Members of Congress are the people we get. How do you advise them on how to weigh, was the search for Osama bin Laden a success or a failure? Should it have been quicker? How do we evaluate it? Oh, such a hard question. Oh, it is a hard question. Okay, well, good. I'm happy. <laughs> Next question. <laughs> no, seriously, that's one thing I want to hear is, is that hard or, or for, to a professional, is it easy? No, it's really hard. So I remember years ago, I was in Los Angeles when then CIA Director Michael Hayden came to speak. Right. And we had not found Osama bin Laden. And he gave this public speech. And the first question from the audience, gentleman raised his hand and he said, I want to know why after all the billions of dollars we spend on these 18 different agencies, however many there were, all these different intelligence agencies, why can't we find Osama bin Laden? 
And Hayden shot back without missing a beat. He said, I'll tell you why, because he's hiding. And everyone started to laugh, but Hayden's point was really serious, which is that this is hard stuff. It's a lot harder than, it, than we think it is when we watch television and the movies. So I look at the bin Laden operation as an intelligence success. And one of the reasons I look at it as an intelligence success is if you look at, you notice, you, you noted before, Peter, that we all thought bin Laden would be hiding in the mountainous regions between Afghanistan and Pakistan. Why? That's what he had always done before. His tradecraft, if you will, how he dealt with his own security to keep from getting discovered was to hide out in mountainous regions, to surround himself with security forces, to not communicate via satellite phone and other things, and to stay separate from his family. That's how he had always done it for his entire life. And guess what? Osama bin Laden changed it all. Mm -hmm. He zigged instead of zagged. Mm -hmm. And so he ended up hiding in an urban area. He ended up hiding with very little security. He ended up hiding surrounded by family members. So for the CIA to find him, they had to discard all sorts of assumptions that were very reasonable assumptions that very smart people would make about how bin Laden might be operating. And not only did they have to do that, they had to pick up the clues that were dispersed across time and place. And so the fact that we ultimately did find bin Laden is actually an incredible success story. And I think the intelligence community, we often talk about its failures. We rarely talk about its successes, in part because they remain classified. Yes. I think this is an example of an intelligence success. All right. <clears throat> an entirely new kind of threat. We're, I'm talking about Osama bin Laden. People can picture him. He's a human being. We get him by sending guys in on helicopter. Okay. Now here's something that's intangible and new, and that's the cyber threat, mm. to which you devote a couple of chapters in Spies, Lies, and Algorithms. Let me quote the book, quoting you. Put simply, cyber attacks involve any activity, any activity that alters the confidentiality, integrity, or availability of information on digital systems. Okay, so the bad guys can use cyber attacks to steal information from corporate, ranging from corporate plans to nuclear secrets to blackmail high officials snooping around in their online garbage bin, so to speak, to threaten to shut down portions of the grid. Uh, in an extreme case, a cyber attack could make it impossible for our planes or ships to navigate. Could really shut us down, right? This, it, yes. I'm not overstating the case. No. I'm reading your book correctly on all this. Okay. so. This is bloodless by comparison with a nuclear attack. I'm just trying to get the magnitude of the threat here. But cyber attacks could represent as grave a threat to our security as nuclear weapons. Am I being melodramatic or not? No, I don't think you're being melodramatic okay. at all. Okay, so question number one. How good are the bad guys at using cyber attacks already? So what I'm asking for here is some kind of assessment, some way to convey how much damage we've already suffered at the hands of, say, the Chinese and the Russians because of cyber attacks. Well, I think, Peter, you know, we often talk about war and how do we know when we're in cyber war? And I think we already are. Most Americans just don't know it. So we're being attacked millions of times a day. The Chinese 
have been stealing. You say this as though it's blah. But, oh. <laughs> well, in the national security you, world, it is, it it is, is an everyday okay, thing. Right, I think, right, and right. I think one of the challenges that you raise with cyber versus nuclear is most Americans think of cyber attacks as my credit card got stolen. Yes. It's kind of an annoyance. Right. And it's something that's intangible. It's not that serious. Maybe it could result in a, a shutdown of a company for a day or two, but it's hard to fathom how cyber attacks could operate because we haven't seen the results of a massive cyber attack mm -hmm. that shut down our economy, for example, before. It's not to say it can't happen, but we haven't seen it. So it's hard to imagine what it could be. But the reality is that there are major cyber actors that have been waging cyber warfare against this country for years. I put China at the top of that list. China has stolen us blind. China has stolen billions and billions of dollars of uh, trade secrets and intellectual property. As a matter of state policy, as a matter of policy, communist Chinese Communist Party, not this or that individual corporation. It's not Alibaba no. that's stealing secrets from Google. No, this is the Chinese oh. Communist Party either tacitly supporting or actively directing right. cyber espionage and theft of American trade secrets for technological advantage. Right. And they've been doing it for years. And, and that is the action of an enemy is the way we ordinarily, I mean, there's all, when we think of China, are they a competitor, an adversary, or an enemy? You've just described the activities of an enemy, haven't you? Yes. All right. And I think the thinking in this country has changed. I think the Trump administration, to its, to its credit, really highlighted the fact that China is not a responsible stakeholder and that China really is pursuing interests that are against freedom, they are against the United States, and they're against the world order. But you know, there are senior military officials that have said every major Chinese weapons system today is based on technology stolen from the United States. Every major one. So we think about not just on the commercial side, but in the military side. Why is China's military getting so good so fast? stolen intellectual property, stolen technology from the United States. So they're spying and they're stealing. And then there are the Russians, which are, you know, the Russians are very good at deception operations. Right. And so they've been very active in information warfare in this space. And of course, in ransomware and these attacks that hold companies and individuals hostage. And so then there are two other major cyber actors I, that I put in the big four. Um, the other two are North Korea, surprisingly adept at cyber capabilities, uh, and Iran, which has waged destructive attacks against casinos, against American banks, against the Saudi uh, oil company. And so when we think about the cyber threat landscape, these big four, China, Russia, Iran, and North Korea, have a lot of things in common. Number one, they're sophisticated cyber adversaries. Number two, they all either have or want to have nuclear weapons. Mm. Number three, they all are seeking or are in the midst of uh, pursuing territorial aggression in their neighborhoods. Russia's invaded Ukraine. China has its sights set on Taiwan and the South and East China Sea and in contested territory there. North Korea, South Korea, and Iran in its neighborhood. And then all four of them seek to remake the international order in a way that is not good for democracies and freedom-loving people. And it's that combination of factors, the cyber with the nuclear, with the territorial aggression, and the remaking of the international order. It's that combination that makes those four countries in particular so dangerous for the United States. Okay. Do you know how depressing all that sounds? 
Here you, you, you're speaking in a, in a sophisticated, nuanced way, the professional academics stating threats that you now are so, but uh, I, I read your book and then I hear you say this, for, you might as well be Darth Vader breathing heavily. So, so this, this is why is, my husband says I can't talk about what I do at cocktail parties right. <laughs> because it depresses people. People start drinking too many too yes. quickly. All right, so, so how good are we at facing up to these threats? You write about the distinction within the intelligence community as people who pride themselves on being pure intelligence officers or officials and those who view themselves as war fighters instead. And these are two different cultures within intelligence. And, and you write about this as a problem for standing up in particular to the cyber threat. Could you explain that? And, and also, can, I'm sorry, I'm just going to give you a sort of big question then just drop it in your lap. The other piece of this is, where do we stand in the, regard to these cyber threats, which are already, the Chinese have already stolen us blind. That's what you said, they've stolen us blind. Is this Pearl Harbor where we're just finally waking up to the threat? Or have we won, or is this Guadalcanal? Have we won some major encounters? Do we know what's going on and we have an apparatus at work? All right, all of that, Amy. In 30 with seconds or less. <laughs> with a further assignment that the end has to be cheerful. Okay. I actually think the end is cheerful. All right. Let me start with the good news. How about Thank that? Thank you. Thank you. We are getting much better in cyberspace. So we now have Cyber Command that's about a decade old. Mm -hmm. So it's important. And that's located where? In the Pentagon. It's It shares space in Fort Meade. So this is important. So All right. The National Security Agency and U.S. Cyber Command are very tightly intertwined. There's a big debate about when they should go their separate ways. And the reason this is important is that cyber capabilities descend from an intelligence bloodline. So the National Security... That's the pure intelligence side. Yes. Right. So the National Security Agency collects foreign signals intelligence. So think uh, uh, intercepting phone calls, emails, encrypted communications. I emphasize the word foreign, right? They're not spying on your phone calls with your grandma. So that's their job. And so cyber capabilities descended from that enterprise. Mm -hmm. And so <clears throat> the head of the National Security Agency has until now always been dual-hatted as also the head of United States Cyber Command. So this question of intelligence versus war fighting is very much at play. Intelligence officers always want to keep collecting. They work hard to penetrate adversary computer systems and they don't want to give that up by revealing what we know and using it either, either to defend or to attack. So intelligence officers always want to err on the side of keeping the listening going, keeping the intelligence collection streams going. Warfighters have a bias for action. They want to use that intelligence mm. to do something. And so you have these two tendencies co-located in the same, well, not the same organization, but a highly overlapping organization. And so what we've seen over time is a move from we're going to really have an err on the side of understanding and listening and defending, right, this perimeter defense sort right. of perspective of cybersecurity, which didn't work out so well, to we need to be more aggressive. We need to be more forward-leaning. We need to go on cyber offense. And so what we've seen in the past few years is a really new strategy, which Cyber Command calls defend forward. And as its name suggests, it means 
we can't just sit here and attack and defend against attacks on our networks. We have to take the fight to adversary networks. We have to impose friction on them. We have to make it harder for the bad guys to operate in their own computer systems, and that's a better way to defend. And so we've gotten much better at that in cyberspace. And I think you can see sort of telltale indicators of that in the comments that we're hearing from the commander of Cyber Command, General Nakasone, mm -hmm. in Congress last week, alluded to the fact that we've been helping the Ukrainians defend their cyber uh, capabilities better. I, I was listening to a wonderful uh, event on Zoom last night with five former directors of intelligence agencies and General Hayden, who used to run the National Security Agency, said something to the effect of, if we look back 10 years from now, we're going to be pretty happy with how uh, our cyber capabilities were used, suggesting that, in fact, uh, we've been more active than maybe the government would uh, say publicly. So that's a good news story. We're getting better and we're getting more assertive at using our tremendous cyber capabilities to defend forward. But it's a changing battle space and it's a really complicated and challenging battle space. Okay. You said you were going to start with the good news. The, the bad news is it's complicated. Oh, the bad, there's more bad news. Well, we'll just wait for that. All right, listen. You want to, I can, yeah, I can, go ahead. Let me just put a sort of a, a framing around the bad news. Why is cyber so hard and why should we be so yes, afraid? Yes, yes. I think there are two reasons. If we think about what historically has protected the United States from all sorts of bad actors, what makes us secure as Water. a country? Water. So geography is one important one. So we're physically separated from bad neighborhoods in the world. And the other is power, right? Our military power in particular, the most powerful militaries can better protect their societies. Those two things do not protect us in cyberspace. So there are no good or bad neighborhoods in cyberspace. They're all bad neighborhoods in cyberspace. That's how the internet was created, to be open. So you can't protect yourself no matter how much you try. You can, oh, I should, I should take a step back. You can't fully protect yourself, right? Mm -hmm. It's not like the oceans. We can't create cyber oceans. And then- there's no, there's, no, there's no coherent isolationist impulse in cyberspace. You well, just can't do it. And there's a trade-off. The more you isolate from cyberspace, the more you hurt global trade, Isolate. the global exchange of ideas. Mm -hmm. So there's an inherent trade-off there. So there's the Great Firewall in China, right? But there's a, it, it's not as much of a firewall as the Chinese Communist Party would like it to be, number one. Uh, and it has a real price to pay in terms of the ability of people to uh, communicate with each other, number two. So that's the first thing that historically has protected us is water. Mm -hmm. But the second is power. And the United States is one of the most powerful countries in cyberspace and simultaneously one of the most vulnerable countries in cyberspace. And that's new. That's unique to cyber because we're asymmetrically dependent on all this connectivity for our economy, for our society, for our government, and, so what, and for our freedom of discourse. So because we're a democracy, because we value free speech, it means the bad guys can deceive at scale. So we're asymmetrically vulnerable to a host of cyber bad actors that we aren't in physical space. All right, we'll come back to that. See, I'm trying to depress you a little yeah, bit. Yeah, no, no, you're, 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 you're good at that. Um, Intel in Silicon Valley, spies, lies, and algorithms, I'm quoting you, at the exact moment when harnessing technology is the key to success, it's hard to overstate just how foreign the worlds of Washington and Silicon Valley are to each other. You inhabit both worlds, or you've, you've 
served in high positions in Washington, you're in touch with intelligence in Washington, and yet you live right here at the epicenter of Silicon Valley. What do you mean? So I call it the suit hoodie divide. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, here in the Valley, people even dress differently than they dress in Washington. They speak a different language. They have a different culture. There's a different orientation. That's not to say it's unbridgeable, but it is in many ways bringing together two foreign cultures. So I have said this to my friends in the Pentagon, stop coming to Silicon Valley and using all of your D words. Military officials love to come here and they use words like destroy, dominate, degrade, defeat. These are very popular words in the military. They are terrifying words in the valley. In the valley, they like to use C words, create, collaborate, mm -hmm. change, culture. And so even if there are aligned interests to protect the nation or advance the national interest, it's often hard for these two cultures even to understand each other to find common ground. Once again, from Spies, Lies, and Algorithms, quote, when Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg testified before Congress in April 2018, it was a jaw-dropping moment showing just how much profits were driving Facebook's decisions and just how little Zuckerberg and his team had considered the possibility that anyone could use their platform to undermine democracy. Google executives canceled an artificial intelligence project with the Pentagon and refused to bid on a desperately needed $10 billion program to modernize the military's cloud computing program." Close quote. Okay, I read that, and my first instinctive response is, Facebook and Google should be ashamed of themselves. And then my second response kicks in, wait just a moment, their employees and their revenues are completely international. They both employ lots of Chinese, Chinese nationals. They have offices all over the world. Why should they feel any particular allegiance, let alone duty, to the United States? So I completely agree with you. There are, you can see why this is such a fraught business. Mm. Because these companies have global shareholders, not just global employees and global markets, and they have global interests. But we also have national security interests, and they're American companies, and they need to have American responsibilities. So how do you find the right balance between global corporations and national security? And that's what we're seeing sort of both sides trying to maneuver to find more common ground. It's a very challenging set of relationships. You know, I, I took a look at Google's uh, AI ethics, for example, and they say, we never want to be involved in anything that could be a weapon of war. And my response is, you are a weapon yes, of war. Yes. Google is a platform by which adversaries do all sorts of bad things. So you can't opt out of geopolitics if you're a company. And that's especially mm. true for tech platforms. They don't, and I often joke that government agencies want technological capabilities from the Valley that they don't have. And Silicon Valley companies have responsibilities that they don't want. Mm. And so each side is grappling with these really difficult challenges about how to be responsible for national security. I don't think people in Google are bad people with evil ideas. But I think there's a naivete among these tech companies that they don't need to think about negative use cases of their technologies, and that's not their problem. It is their problem. Could I, could I again, I'm, this is wonderful because I read the book and now I get it to, uh, the chance to tell you some of, the some of the things that came to mind as I was reading. And I read this passage about Zuckerberg and the current people at Google and so forth, and I think to myself, um, 
so a kind of, I think to myself of the old Silicon Valley, which was still around when I first came out here. Uh, General William Draper founded, I think, the first VC firm. It's generally considered to, to have been the first venture capital firm. His son, Bill, and now his grandson, also venture capitalists. But listen to a little bit about the original William Draper. He served in the Army. He served as Undersecretary of the Army. He served as Ambassador to NATO. David Packard. Mr. Packard was still on the board of the Hoover Institution when I first came here. He founded Hewlett Packard. And what else did he do? He served as Deputy Secretary of Defense. So my point here is that the generation that founded Silicon Valley were figures of undoubted patriotism who understood the need to, I don't want to say cooperate, but somehow or other it wouldn't have occurred to David Packard that he was in any business other than an American business, that he owed something to this country. Okay, so I think why should that have been the case? And what I can come up with, this is just what occurs to me. I want to see what you make of it. General William Draper was called general for a reason. David, these, the founders of Silicon Valley had experience of war. They understood the stakes. They knew what could happen if things went wrong, if our position eroded relative to that of our enemies. And the current generation, I'm a little suspicious of this thought because it's so facile, which is why I'm putting it to you. But the current generation, these people all got rich remarkably quickly and without paying any price, without seeing the stakes, without understanding what could go wrong if things do go wrong. Does that make any sense to you? And if that's the case, what do we do except wait for another massive global confrontation to teach them their, their rotten lesson? So I think that's a big part of what we're seeing. So if you had asked the question a few years ago, fill in the blank, China is a blank of the United States. And you had asked that to people in Washington, you would have gotten competitor, perhaps adversary, right. enemy. If you had asked that question here in the Valley, you would have gotten market, opportunity, right. investor. Right. So it's just a different right. perspective. I think that's different now. I think the China threat's much more obvious. I think the gap, the divide between Silicon Valley and Washington is narrowing. I think it's you getting, do. I do. But I think there's something else in what you said, Peter, which is that you know, this generation, not only did they not serve these founders of these companies, they don't know anyone who did. And so they're right. living in different universes. How many people in these tech companies know anyone who's ever been in the military before? And conversely, how many people working in the Pentagon know people who grew up in the Valley and what their ethos is and what they value? And I'd layer one other thing into this conversation, which is engineers. Engineers like to solve technical problems and they don't think they're in the policy business, right? Mm. So one of the great things about being mm. at Stanford is I get to teach a lot of engineering students right. and I want to encourage them to think about international security as part of what they do. Because I want the Mark Zuckerbergs of tomorrow to walk in the door the first day better understanding the potential negative uses of their technology. And so we're seeing a slow movement to understand that engineers are not just engineers. They are policymakers, and the design choices they make make it easier or harder for bad people to do bad things with their inventions. And so you can't outsource policy to the Hoover Institution and people like me. Engineers have to think that policy is their job too, and they have to bake it in to their engineering decisions. 
we're getting there. But I think that's a big sea change that needs to happen, not just in the private sector environment, but in universities as well. I see. Okay. All, fa all this is fascinating. Back to this question, this sort of s special problem of, of intel in a democracy. Let me tell you a horror story. It's a true horror story. I mentioned Judge Silberman a moment ago, who, who was with former Senator Rob, chaired the Silberman, the Rob Silberman Commission. <clears throat> Early in his career, uh, he was at the Department of Justice at that point, and this was in the early 70s when there were there was the Church Commission, which you write about in Spies, Lies, and Algorithm, was discovering bad behavior by the CIA, and J. Edgar Hoover had left the FBI, and it fell to Judge Silberman to read through J. Edgar Hoover's private files. And he wrote about this experience, he published a piece in the Wall Street Journal in 2005. This is years after he read through the files. It was the single worst experience of my long governmental service. Hoover, J. Edgar Hoover, had indeed tasked his agents with reporting privately to him any dirt on figures such as Martin Luther King or their families. Hoover used that information for subtle blackmail, to ensure his and the Bureau's power. Perhaps even worse was the evidence that Hoover had allowed the Bureau to be used by presidents for nakedly political purposes. And Silber notes that LBJ in particular was a bad actor. He and J. Edgar Hoover were using information uh, for polit nakedly political reasons. Judge Silberman concludes, this country would be well served if the name of J. Edgar Hoover were removed from the FBI building, close quote. So Larry Silberman, not a liberal, tough guy, brilliant judge, broadly speaking a conservative, and he was disgusted. Now I'm putting it back with J. Edgar Hoover and I'm avoiding the whole set of controversies about Donald Trump and Russian disinformation and Hunter Biden's life. Just, let's just get that, just put that away because that, it's almost impossible to talk about that without getting drawn into other. The question here is, and I think Hoover, Hoover may be an extreme case, but he's a case. He ran the FBI. They get to operate in secret. We don't even know much about their budgets except round numbers. And you yourself write that, that congressional oversight is terrible, just terrible. So just this kind of threshold question, we've, I've already asked how do we assess whether they're doing their work as they should? How can we trust these people? I'm, I'm putting that too broadly, but how can you trust any human being when you say you get to operate in secret? We're going to give you the immense power that comes from secret knowledge. We're going to give you budgets about which very few details will ever be requested. Now go behave in a noble, idealistic, and completely selfless way. That's just not the way human beings operate. Not all of them. So how can we trust these people? Well, you've put your finger on a conundrum of secret agencies operating effectively in democratic societies. We have always grappled with this. And the J. Edgar Hoover years were many. He ran the FBI for decades. Yes. And they were a dark chapter in American intelligence history. And the FBI wasn't the only agency that violated civil liberties, that was used in political ways, that read Americans' mail, that did um, dirty deeds in the case of the CIA abroad in terms of assassination plots. 
And so the question is, how do we know? How can we make sure these agencies are accountable, that they're working according to the law and our values? Congress has to play a crucial role. So before the 70s, as I write in the book, there were, there were no permanent oversight committees. Mm -hmm. Oversight was sort of, we don't really want to know in we Congress, and we're to not going to ask, and maybe we'll just spend a few minutes a year. And so that's better than it used to be. Now there actually are oversight committees, and they do hold hearings, but it's nowhere near what it should be. These oversight committees play a pivotal role because they do get the classified briefings. The intelligence agencies are required by law to keep them fully and currently informed. And Congress has tools at its disposal to punish them if, in fact, they don't keep the committees fully and currently informed. I mean, they do have the power of the purse, after all, mm -hmm. among many other things. And so the question is, how can they do that job better? And the problem is, you know, I'm a political scientist, so I look at incentives of and course. institutions. Right, right, right. And so I think what we often hear, Peter, is the narrative is, well, oversight is better or worse depending on who's president or who's in charge of the committees. And what I find is actually oversight is almost always worse than it should be because of incentives and institutions. Voters don't care how their member of Congress uh, works for intelligence oversight. Oversight service and intelligence is kind of an electoral loser, right? Mm. They can't even talk about what they do to the folks back home. And so unless you want to burnish your national security credentials because you're thinking of running for president, most members of Congress are not drawn to serve on these committees to begin with. Mm -hmm. And they're not experts. So one of the things I found in doing research for this book is there are more dairy experts in Congress, right, or powdered milk experts in Congress than intelligence experts. Why is that? Because there are so many dairy uh, districts where members of Congress have to learn the business if they want to get reelected. There's no dairy district for intelligence in the same way. And so that means members of Congress have to learn on the job. And learning about intelligence takes a lot of time. Mm. And you have to do your homework in a secured facility away from your office without your staff. And if it's hard to do your homework, the homework doesn't get done. So the key here to get better oversight is voters have to care. Voters have to tell their members that they care. Voters have to incentivize members of Congress to care more and we'll get better oversight from them. What we've seen in the past few years, though, Peter, is some outsourcing that can be useful of intelligence oversight to a couple of different types of institutions. Mm -hmm. So one is inspector generals. So these are mm. people who are answerable to Congress, and they can actually examine wrongdoing inside the agencies that they are, um, that they are overseeing. And we Better than nothing, but they only get call called in when something's already gone wrong, Correct. isn't that right? All yes, right. <laughs> and so when we think about what's the proactive effort to make sure these agencies are effective, not just accountable, we need both. That Congress has to do that, and they don't do a very good job. Congress is very good at jumping into scandals after they've happened to complain about how awful things are, when in fact they need to stop the fire from breaking out in the first place. They should be working in partnership with our intelligence so agencies. I, it would seem to me... I'm not a political scientist, and I'm acutely conscious that I'm talking to a very good one. I may, I'm not even sure I'll frame this question well, but it would seem to me that presidents have a big incentive to make sure the information that they're being given is pertinent and correct. And um, of course, with the case of J. Edgar Hoover and LBJ, J. Edgar Hoover and LBJ are, so to speak, in bed together. Set that aside. Presidents don't want 
intelligence agencies snooping around. Don't, don't think, George W. Bush, you'd have to say, you yourself said there was a colossal, or you used some word, I don't know, there was, there was a big intelligence failure in Iraq. Who more than anyone else, excuse me, the people who died as a result, of course, were the ones who suffered the most. But in political terms, surely it's George W. Bush and Dick Cheney whose reputations will take decades to recover, if indeed they ever do, right? Yeah. And now, so, so don't, don't administrations, aren't they in the position? I'm, I'm conscious that George W. Bush kept a professional in the job. George Tenet had served under Clinton and George W. Bush kept him on, whereas Ronald Reagan, my old boss, no thank you. I want guys I know running CIA, Bill Casey, and, uh, and uh, um, at FBI, Judge Webster. I don't know, isn't, isn't, that where the, isn't that the way the system ought to work? Isn't, isn't it presidents who ought to keep tabs on these guys? Well, we who have, have the incentive to do so? Presidents do, but we had real problems in the Reagan administration too with Bill Casey running well, CIA with Iran-Contra, for example. So the CIA got over its skis in some covert action that proved problematic for the Reagan administration politically. So Reagan suffered true. politically too right, because right, of the, right, what right. the CIA was doing. So, but you're right, presidents- I'll stick up for Bill Casey, but that's a separate show. But <laughs> the general point that things got, became a mess. Yes, I grant that, go ahead. So presidents <clears throat> have an incentive to make the intelligence community work well for them. The problem is they don't have the time. Mm. Presidents have, as you know, very short, uh, uh, time horizons and they have long agendas and those agendas are about action. They're about policy. They're not about delving into the bureaucratic details of whether the agencies are working as they should. And so they're focused on the near term, which means that these long term weaknesses, are we adapting to the end of the Cold War and the rise of terrorism? Are we understanding what's going on in cyberspace fast enough, well enough? Those longer term challenges almost always get put lower down the priority list for presidents. And by the way, when presidents say they do wanna actually have the intelligence agencies work better together, they're resisted, right? And the most powerful interest group in Washington is the status quo. Correct, correct. So uh, I, I don't wanna stick with this forever, but if polls are to be believed, it's very likely, a lot can happen between now and November, but it's very likely that the next Speaker of the House will be Congressman Kevin McCarthy from the Central Valley here in California. So what do you advise him? You're very likely to become speaker. Here's a really serious problem. And if you do become speaker, it'll become, be under circumstances in which the whole world is expecting new departures. Here's what you should do. I think with respect to intelligence, I'd say, choose the members of that committee carefully so that they're, they have a bipartisan ethos, mm -hmm. that they think about the nation. I think we've seen a lot of this on the Senate side, frankly. They've done a really good job of, of remaining bipartisan in a very polarized time when they have to, to, to support the intelligence community to do a better job. That's number one. And number two, and I've mentioned this to some members of the committee already, if you had to do one thing immediately that would improve oversight in the House, get rid of the term limits on the House Intelligence Committee. So if you think about... Um, it takes time to get to know the community, yes. the procedures, the protocols. And just when you learn what all those acronyms mean, you have to get off the committee. I see. Okay. Last questions. 
I began with a couple of case studies set in the fairly deep past, at least by the standards of students, let's say, 10, 12, 20 years ago. It was a long time ago. That's like the Peloponnesian War for yes, exactly. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So let's, um, let's start with one set in the present or the near future. China has stepped up its overflight of Taiwan. I've even read commentary. This is going on all the time. Fighters are violating Taiwan airspace all the time, Chinese fighters. And um, the speculation that I've read is that they're trying to numb the Taiwanese, that they're trying to make this, this is a first step to broadening the, the possibilities for what they might do. And step number one is you make violations of their airspace feel routine even to them. So now that Russia has invaded Ukraine, we need to know from the intelligence communities, what are the Chinese thinking about Taiwan? How do you frame the question? What expectations do you set? How long should it take to get useful information? So, so you're advising the president. Let's say you're advising Joe Biden on that very set of, how do you task the intelligence community and what are the reasonable expectations you can have for them? So I think, Peter, there's the baseline question of capabilities and intentions. Right. So let's look at that before the invasion of Ukraine. What does Xi Jinping want? Well, we know what he wants. He's he tells actually, us. He tells us what yes. he wants. Yes. Right. He wants reunification with Taiwan, ideally through coercion, not through military action. But as you pointed out, you know, the Chinese are getting much more assertive in using their newfound military power to desensitize the Taiwanese and us, by the way, about what right. they're doing. You see this buildup in the South China Sea. So they have dramatically increasing capabilities and we know what their intentions are. So that's the baseline. How does the invasion of Ukraine change either of those things? The, how the government views its own capabilities? Because it's clear the Russians, or Putin in particular, overestimated his own military and what it could do. Mm -hmm. They hadn't really fought in a contested environment in years, and the Chinese army hasn't fought in a contested environment in longer. So if I'm Xi Jinping- Since 1949, since, Or 79 with Vietnam, uh, right? Fine, fine. So if I'm Xi Jinping, I'm a little worried about, is my military as good as I think it is? And are the capabilities that I've been developing really as battle-tested as I want them to be? I'd be a little more concerned about that. So I would want to know from the intelligence community, what are we picking up about what the, what the government is reassessing in its own military? Then there's the question of what are his intentions and what, what are the lessons that the leadership in Beijing is learning from this invasion? And it's too soon to tell, but it's clear over the longer term that Vladimir Putin has united the West in a way no one thought would be possible. Mm -hmm that the US-led international order has gotten a shot in the arm, that the allies have come together, and that we're using economic tools in ways we have not used before. And if you're Xi Jinping, and you've bet the farm on your regime uh, being tied to economic growth in China between COVID and what you're seeing with economic sanctions, you've gotta be a lot more worried about a Taiwan scenario. Now, that said, I think it's fair to surmise that uh, the world would not respond to China with sanctions in the way it's responded to Russia because mm -hmm. we're so much more tightly intertwined economically mm -hmm. with China. So we would feel much more pain, not just the Chinese. But I think from an intelligence perspective, it's what's the baseline? How, if at all, do we think this might be changing? In which direction? And how would we know it when we saw it? How do we know what the thinking and what the capabilities are in China 
as these events play out, what lessons is Xi Jinping drawing from what he's seeing on the ground? And by the way, if I were queen for a day, how can the United States use this horrific invasion as a geopolitical opportunity to drive a wedge between the Russians and the Chinese? I know that's a policy question. It is. But there's an intelligence piece to it, which is what are the conversations happening between Moscow and Beijing? What are the points of friction between the two? What are they negotiating over? How can we publicize what we know? You'll notice there's been declassified intelligence about Russian requests for Chinese assistance. I think that's pretty smart. How can we publicize what we know to back the Chinese into a corner? They have to take a side because they're in a very uncomfortable position and Russia is not the partner you want right now in the world. So I think there's an opportunity to use intelligence and disclose intelligence to support an exploited divide between this growing alliance, this allegiance between the Russians and the Chinese. Okay, another couple of questions, if I may, these last questions. China's huge, outnumbers us by five or six to one. Its economy is still growing, it's capable of tremendous growth, and it's ruthless, centrally controlled. Okay, Russia is vast geographically, of course, that represents an advantage in some ways. What you have in Russia is a willingness to use whatever, it it has a weak hand, declining population, small, but Putin is willing to pull triggers. All right, what advantage do we have? Long-term advantage with regards to intel. We're only 330 million people. We're politically very bitterly divided, at least at the moment. Hard to imagine that turning around quickly maybe single-digit years, but maybe not. And you've already said that our capacity for technical innovation as an advantage that's at least muted by the Chinese ability to steal innovations two seconds after they occur to some bright engineer at Google or Facebook. So why aren't we doomed? What are, our, what are the advantages we have with regard to intelligence that are distinctively American and that give us some hope? What can we do that they can't counter? What can we do that they can't do or that they can't do nearly as well? I think, Peter, we have some real enduring advantages in intelligence. The first is we have allies. You know, China has customers. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have allies. And so, and what we're seeing this in Ukraine too. So we have the capability to harness the intelligence talents of lots of countries in our behalf, not just the United States. You know, we have a very close working relationship with what we call the five eyes. Right. This is, you know, the- New Zealand, Australia, Canada, United Kingdom, and us, correct? Exactly. Oh, do I get a, a, a extra credit for that? You do, oh, you get A plus. You. Oh, excellent, all right. <laughs> and so we're seeing greater sharing among allies in Europe too, not just the five eyes with Russia and Ukraine. So we have allies, the Chinese don't. They've got North Korea on their side. This is not a good team that you wanna be a part of from an intelligence perspective. We have values on our side. And I think if Ukraine has shown us anything, it's the power of those values. You know, I was doing research for this book on counterintelligence. I spent a lot of time looking at history at people who served the United States and betrayed their own country, in this case, the Soviet Union and the Cold War. Why did they do it? 
And one of the most valuable assets we had was a guy whose code name was Top Hat. He was, a, he was a military officer in the Soviet Union. He never asked for a penny. He, he lost his life by giving secrets about the Soviet Union to the United States. Why did he do it? He believed in what we stood for. He believed in our freedom. And that values piece is enduring in intelligence. It's why foreigners will want to stand up and risk their lives and risk their families to help the United States. And I think the third, actually I would say two more enduring mm -hmm. values. We still have an innovation ecosystem that's second to none. So, and I think we can continue to use that. We can use it more effectively, but it hasn't died. We still have it. Right. And then we have this incredible multicultural society we have people in this country that speak lots of different languages. They come from lots of different places. They understand lots of different cultures. What an intelligence advantage mm. that is to understand governments and societies outside the United States that the Chinese can't match in the same way that we can. So our immigrant background, our multicultural society is an enormous intelligence advantage if we use it in the right way. Let's close where we opened. <clears throat> One of your students here at Stanford comes to you for advice. She has a job offer from Google, interesting work, fascinating work, all kinds of technical challenges, very good pay. Lots of her friends are going to be there. But she's also received expressions of interest from the CIA. Less pay. It's a government bureaucracy after all when all is said and done. But the recruiter makes it sound surprisingly interesting. Professor Ziegart, she says, what advice would you give me? How do I weigh these up? Well, the first thing I always say to students is you have to follow your heart. That, mm. And the advice is what it's worth, right? It's free. So they have to find what's right for them. But if, if it were me making that decision, I would say to myself, do you want to sell ads and make algorithms work faster, or do you want to save lives and work for your country? I think the other thing, too, is there are windows of opportunity where it's easier to go into government and it's easier to go into the private sector. And so I always tell my students, think about what's a one-way street and a two-way street. Easier to go right from college into government service, and then you can leave and you can still serve your country in other ways as you go to Google later, or you go to the private sector later. And then by the way, you've taken that experience with you. You know, we, we, in our, earlier in our conversation, we talked about why don't Silicon Valley leaders get it? Well, they haven't had that experience in government. And so government service or public service, I think we have to have a broader idea of that. It doesn't mean you're a lifer, you can be an ambassador from that experience working in an intelligence agency, then go to Google and bring all of that knowledge with you about how the government works, what that perspective is. You'll serve the company better, you'll serve your nation better. So I would say you don't have to choose, but if you had to go first, I'd say go to the CIA first and then pursue your private sector career if you decide you want to. But I think the mission is such a strong pull, it'd be hard to leave. Thank you. I'm a little sore about that one because all my life I've waited for the tap on the shoulder and I've never been asked to join an intelligence agency. Amy Ziegart, author of Spies, Lies, and Algorithms, The History and Future of American Intelligence, thank you. Thank you so much, Peter. For Uncommon Knowledge, the Hoover Institution, and Fox Nation, I'm Peter Robinson.